Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to end the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real-life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates as we debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, frauds, scams, and multi-level marketing. Join us all month for cult stories, education, and experiences. Don't be culty, huns. Hey, Hunbots and Hunbros. Before we get to our housekeeping and our show, um, I come to you with a heavy heart to give you an update on a sad story. Becca Peter, who is a friend of mine and starred in Lula Rich with me, for the past year and a half, her son Eddie and their family has been battling a brain tumor. And this past week, sweet Eddie lost his battle. I know a couple of you follow her on social media, and I wanted to give that update and send my love to the Peter family. I can't even imagine what it would be like to lose my child, and I just want to let you know that I love you, and I'm here for you. I've included a link in the show notes to where you can donate to Pediatric Brain Research as a way to send love to Eddie and the Peter family. But we are with you, and we support you in this really, really difficult time. This episode is a heavy episode. It is with Lindsay Williams from Shiny Happy People and the IBLP. And we talk about her story, which includes child abuse and an interesting piece to my story of where does all this toxic rhetoric come from? Um, we're always learning. And I, I wanted to share this with Lindsay because she has a unique perspective. And um, yeah, so I just decided to share it on the podcast so that you guys could be a part of that conversation as well. We talk about all different types of child abuse, but mostly spanking. And so please, please, please use discretion while listening, because while Lindsay and I do make jokes and have a really good time in telling this story, it still is a very heavy topic, but it is definitely done in life after MLM style. Lindsay is also going to be joining us on Patreon for an exclusive top tier chat and AMA with not only her, but also Chad Harris. And Chad Harris will also be on the podcast in the future. So if you are interested in having a live AMA with us, there will be details on Patreon soon so that you don't miss that chat. Other than those things, I hope you enjoy this episode. It was very fun to make. There were a couple audio issues. I think I fixed them. Sometimes things come up and I, I'm really, I'm not an audio engineer and I, I don't really know. And so I have to fiddle until it sounds better, but I am learning new tricks and there's a couple, for some reason, I kind of sound echoey. It's very strange. I'm not really sure what's going on, but I think I fixed, I fixed it as best as I possibly could. I apologize if I missed any spots. Hopefully it's not too much of a distraction. Anyway, enjoy this episode and I will see you on the next one. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. It is cult month. I am so excited. I feel like, and I even said this before we hit record, I said, I feel like we've already done this episode, but we haven't. I am so excited to welcome to the show my friend, Lindsay Williams. Hi. Yay. It's finally happening. How many months has it been that we've talked about this? So many months. (laughs) 
too many. <laughs> I apologize. No, I was so busy and I was really uh, like, oh, I need to talk to Lindsay. I need to get her on this month. Like your story, it just, it needs to be on here. So for anybody who is listening and maybe recognizes your name, recognizes your voice, or maybe doesn't, Lindsay was one of the stars in Shiny Happy People, the documentary about IBLP and the Duggar family that came out this year. Really, really great stuff. We have an episode with Tara and Floyd earlier this year where we dive into a little bit about IBLP and there's some other IBLP stuff that comes up now and again. So I thought, let's just do a whole focus for this month on this and have Lindsay come on and share it. So welcome to the show. Boom. <laughs> Thank you. I'm excited. And then I'm also like, where is this going to go? Right. <laughs> I can't wait to see what we discuss in this, yeah. you know, however long we're on. <laughs> well, I think the thing that I'm really the most excited about is really just learning your story individually. So we hear in Shiny Happy People, for everybody that hasn't watched it yet, what have you been doing? But in Shiny Happy People, we meet a lot of different characters, a lot of different people who have a lot of different stories. And what I think is really cool is when you have somebody from a show or a documentary like that to come on and really just focus on your story and all the stuff that got left out and the things that you wanted to share that like got cut because I totally understand that concept. And I think a lot of uh, my listeners really appreciate the perspective as well. So let's start with your story and you can start as early back as you would like. Well, back in the womb. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I won't go that far back. <laughs> Actually, the Cliff Notes version, I think, of the beginning of my story was really my introduction to IBLP, which started around six, but I wasn't at the seminars at that age. My parents were going to them, six, seven years old, and Bill Gothard's advanced seminar and basic seminar under the Institute and Bicycle Life Principles, which I know can, there's just a lot of words I'm throwing out to your listeners. <laughs> Go watch the documentary, then come back. <laughs> but <laughs> the Institute and Basic Life Principles is a ministry that was put together by Bill Gothard. He is our, quote, cult leader. He was the mastermind behind this biblical principled ministry that he started back in the 60s. And in the 60s and 70s, he had the basic and advanced seminars where he would just I always liken it to like the booster pack of your Christianity. So if you were a Christian and you were going to church, you're like, you know, I just want a little bit more. I want the Tony Robbins of like inspiring me to be better at work. So I'm just going to get this like <laughs> the Bill Gothard of inspiring my spiritual walk. And he's going to tell me more I've never known. And I'm going to get so much closer to my beloved Jesus Christ. <laughs> it worked. It, you know what I mean? Like it, he's a wonderful marketer. He's a great salesman. He's a slightly strange orator, but here we are. So my parents got involved in it. it. It definitely infiltrated churches. And so it was usually someone at church that would recommend it to another person. And it's just word of mouth because back then the internet was not what it is now. And we didn't have cell phones and social media. Right. So it was like, oh my gosh, I, FOMO. I don't want to be left out. I want to go and, and see this seminar. So my parents were doing that. And around the same time, Bill Gothard was creating his homeschooling program. The man never stops at creating and coming up with new things. I call them now griffs. <laughs> but at the time, we were like, oh, he's expanding the ministry. Look at this man. God is just bubbling through him and giving him all these grandiose ideas for how we can all have like cool booster pack additions to Christian life and be even more strictly fabulous Christians. So for those who are already like really stuck in IBLP and they've been to the basic seminar and the advanced seminar, they're like, wait, 
this is what we're doing in our Christianity. Now we're going to homeschool our kids because first of all, now we trust Bill. Second of all, yeah, he's totally right. <laughs> and third, let's keep our kids out of the public because yeah, the public is tearing down our children and it's indoctrinating them. And so let's take them and indoctrinate them with what we want them to know. But the biggest failure, in my opinion, I don't fault parents for being zealous in their religion that they wanted to do more and be better. Everybody wants to be better at what they do. What they failed to do was ask questions and really look at the materials that Bill was creating and who was creating it alongside of him. Because these materials were not educational. They were informational for very biased views that were not steeped in truth or science or facts. It was simply fear-mongering, a lot of made-up speculations that run around in fundamentalism and evangelical circles. And if you happen to be birthed into a family that cared about your education, actual academic education, then they would supplement with other textbooks because the wisdom booklets were not enough. They never could be enough. So smart families <laughs> would bring in academic books, not so smart families or families who were just like, academia doesn't matter because Bill has already said that and we believe it. Those families were like, well, wisdom booklets are all we need. And then some hymns and our kids can do chores and they're going to learn character and that's all they need, right? According to Bill. But we believe him, so we ask no questions. So when I was eight, my parents enrolled me very excitedly into the Advanced Training Institute, which is the homeschooling program that Bill created. They took my brother and I out of public school. I was in third grade. He was in first grade. And my little brother has never gone to school. And we started getting uh, indoctrinated by these really horrible materials that I'm glad I've forgotten a lot of it, but I am also so aware that was like... 12 years of wasted time because I just don't, I don't have an education of any kind that I can stand on my two feet and be like, yeah, I knew this happened in history because wow. <laughs> it's all warped Bill Gothardist history, right. which is so bent. Yeah. To his beliefs. It's like you describe IBLP and it really, it feels like a supplement. It's just, it feels like your vitamin J like, Oh, you already yes. believe in Jesus. Well, do you want a little bit more Jesus? We'll have some vitamin J. It just pumps up the Jesus that's already in you. And I think the really scary thing about it is because it is non-denominational and it is just Jesus-centered and Jesus-focused, any religion that believes in Jesus can use and supplement that into their religion. And now you've got the tentacles of Bill Gothard in Protestants and Baptists and, you know, like Presbyterians and whatever. And you have this ATI homeschooling as another supplement going, hey, you want to learn? You mentioned the wisdom booklets, which we see in the documentary. And they basically say they're teaching us slut shaming, but like, you know, not like history <laughs> yep. and math and things. Yep. And it really was. It was like circle the spot in here where the woman is sinning. And it's like her belly button is showing or whatever, like ridiculous things. Yeah. That is just chock full of purity culture. Yeah. And really just the breeding ground for it. You learn to judge and you learn to fear. You don't learn to, to really stand on your own two feet. You don't learn to have your own autonomy. You don't learn self-confidence. Your confidence actually comes from how well you can judge others. And the pride and arrogance 
that does give you. You're not told that's the byproduct, but that is what's happening. You are so easily able to just like see someone and judge everything about them. It's literally judge the book by its cover and then condemn them to hell for it. Absolutely. It is like a hierarchy. Yeah. Like you see somebody and you judge them so that you can place yourself above them and move closer to the top of the pyramid, the ladder, wherever you're going. Yeah. And condemn those who are lesser than you to being below you, beneath you. They're garbage. They're trash. They're sinners. They're going to burn in hell anyway. Why do I care? I can't save them. Tried. Couldn't do it. Going to worry about myself now. Yeah. haven't done the work and I, I have reached other levels of my spirituality that they can't even come up to my level at this point. Start at the basic seminar, boo. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then you just have to like keep power leveling up as you go through these seminars. And then can you imagine the FOMO <laughs> that like certain moms in Christian churches and stuff are like looking at these other kids going, oh my gosh, look at their kids. Like they act so perfect and they're just like so bright in the shiny, happy people type version that they're seeing. And so then they're like, oh my gosh, do I need to do this? And they start getting the conviction of the spirit. And it's really not. It's just peer pressure. Like, oh, I should go and get involved too. And I can't tell you how many times we had families that would look at us, at, at my family, and say, wow, your kids are so well behaved. And inside, I'm like, don't do it. Don't do this to your kids. You know? And then the next thing you know, they're going on to the seminars and they start getting involved and their kids are getting homeschooled. And you're like, ah, why is this so effective? So you got into this racket at eight years old. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yep. And that's when I said the documentary where we were sitting in the basement and my mom had taken these like just plywood pieces and put contact paper over them. And then we had these milk cartons stacked up. So they were mock desks. And that's when I'm like, what in the honky tonk situation is this? Like, it just was so I'd come from a proper school and now I'm just like sitting in a basement with milk crates. And I'm like, what's happening? You're like playing school in your basement. Yes, I was playing school. And that is so how it felt. And of course, I'm only in third, I was in third grade at that point, but I'm aware enough of like what structure looks like, and what I was learning from school. And when I got into the homeschool situation, it, that just all stopped. I'm like, this is so weird. Like the stuff that I'm learning, like, I don't even know what this stuff is. Like, I can't even wrap my head around the concepts because you're not learning an academic, you're learning a moral compass, you know? And so it's more of a feeling that you start to get of, I don't understand all that's being said to me, but I get the feeling that my parents want me to perform a certain way. I, I get the feeling that I shouldn't be doing this. And then if I don't do it, then I get disciplined. So then it's a behavior control thing and you start getting modified in the way that you are conditioned. It's really quite insidious. I, I mean, it's pure fear. Yes. Oh, and as a kid... It, yeah. I mean, I've spent the majority of my life with fear and anxiety. Absolutely. I mean, that's what therapy has been so good at helping me work around and get through. But yeah, I mean, I had so many medical issues, even as a young kid, based on fear. Like I remember, I mean, it's really silly, but I remember and also just like feeling really frustrated. I remember being constipated. <laughs> Like a total, total TMI for everybody, <laughs> but it went on for eight days and I was a kid, but I was trying to control anything. And that was, you know, this like mental state of like, this is the only thing I can actually control that no one can make me do. 
unless I deem myself to do it. Now, of course, I'm thinking from who I am now and not at the time. I was just like, I'm holding this in. You know, it's just, th- yeah, but I didn't really understand all the psyche behind it. It's just like, now I know it was like, it was the one thing that someone couldn't force me to do until we went to the doctor and he forced me to, wow. to do it by means of medicine. <laughs> the doctor's like, drink this. And I was like, no. Yeah. I was like, I've lost my control. <laughs> but it didn't help my nervous system, my anxiety, you know, as I grew older and with the discipline too of not, not behaving. And it just, it's a lot of shaming. And because you know how you judge others, you know that's how you're also being judged. Like you turn it around on yourself. You are now hyper aware that everyone looks at you the way you look at everybody else. And that brings even more fear. And that's on a child's mind. That's how a child's mind is being formed into the universe. So let's talk about some of those early childhood memories, because a lot of times when I talk to people who were raised in evangelicalism, they talk about having the dreams, like the hell dreams. So did you have hell dreams and how early do you remember them starting? So I actually did not have hell dreams. I <laughs> I have a very weird relationship with myself and religion because as a kid, yes, I was afraid, but I was afraid of humans. I was afraid of my parents. I was afraid of other Christians. I was afraid of men. I was afraid of human beings on the planet. I actually thought that the idea of like angels and demons was really rad. Like I liked this idea of like, like in the movie Constantine is sometimes the only way I can like describe it, you know, where like all of the demons are down in hell and they're like creeping along and then the archangels come down and there's like this big war and I'm like, yeah, (laughs) I liked the idea of this idea of going to hell though. I do remember when I was around like, I was still in public school, so it must have been like six or seven years old. You remember you'd get like the little photographs. Mine was with a wheel, (laughs) a little little wagon wheel, like all propped up. And I cut these pictures out, the really teeny ones, and I put them on three by five post-it cards. And I wrote on it, this is so you will remember me when I die. Because I was afraid of dying. I knew I wasn't a Christian because I didn't really understand like, well, I, I was afraid that if I didn't understand and I asked Jesus into my heart, then would it be real? But then I also just didn't really understand what all of it was about. And I thought, well, if I die before I do this, then I will be in hell and everyone will forget me. And again, it was more this like weird plane of I was more worried about the people than I was worried about my soul. I just didn't want to be forgotten which again, I think is like such a weird, because I know a lot of people are like, oh my God, I'm going to burn in a pit of fire. And I'm like, I I don't know if I believe that you can, like, that's not a concept I can see and understand. So how is it real? Right. I was pretty literal kid, which again, still to this day does not make sense to me because sometimes I don't feel myself as being like that bright of a kid, but I just, if I couldn't see it, I didn't believe it. But yet I believe that God could be there. But trust and believe I was asking him a lot of requests and nothing was happening. So I'm like, is he real? Because I know my parents are real when they spank me. I know that Bill Gothard's real when I see him. I know that the police are real when they pull people over and they get into trouble. Like that I see, that I believe, that I'm scared of. I was more scared of human beings than I was scared of the other worlds. So my dreams were actually me... (laughs) wow, this is very vulnerable. My dreams were of me attacking the people that were hurting me. Wow. Yeah. Like I remember having one dream against someone specifically where I bit their ear off. 
it was a recurring dream that I was so angry at this person, which still to this day tracks, like rightfully so. <laughs> but I like, it would be in a, a creepy night for us. And again, you have to also remember, I wasn't a regular American kid where I'm watching horror movies or things that I shouldn't. I'm completely isolated and incubated with all of the godly good things. But I was having this dream that I'm like walking through this dark forest. It's very foggy, you know, kind of like werewolfy-ish. And there's this like cloaked figure up ahead. And I just knew it was this person. And I too have a cloak on that's like, you know, almost over my eyes. And I walk up slowly and then I just rip the hood back and I, I jump on them like a little spider monkey and I bite their ear off. <laughs> and then I wake up satisfied. <laughs> like it, was, it was so messed up. And I had this dream uh, probably until I was like 14 or 15 years old. What? Yes. There was no like, oh, I'm so afraid that I'm going to burn in hell, though fully valid given everything that, that was pushed on us constantly. But I, I remember listening to people say that they had these dreams. And I'm like, why didn't my brain do that? <laughs> like, why did my brain do this other thing? And I just think it was that like, the autonomy of it all. Like you are something I could fix, but I can't right now. But this is what I wish I could do, I guess. To right. It. it makes sense. Like in your dream, you could fight back, whereas in real yeah. life you couldn't. So like you're able to face that thing, that feeling, that person and be like, oh, I got you. And spider monkey and just... <laughs> But the fact that it's reoccurring is like, it's just yeah. so indicative of fear and anxiety and of like you wanting to be able to take control, like you say, and not being able to do that because of your age or your situation or, you know, whatever that's going on. Yeah. It's very interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that because it's like funny, but also so sad, you know, which I think this show teeters on a lot. Like that was a hilariously sad episode. Yeah, that was <laughs> I feel traumatically uh, comedic right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, the darkest comedy and humor, I feel, comes from cult survival. Yes. We can be gnarly. Yeah. I'm a little dark myself, so yeah. We are not afraid to be gnarly, that's for sure. Like, it's we've lived a lot of messed up stuff, so we can joke probably a lot darker than some people. Absolutely. Yeah. People are like, how dare you say that? You're like, oh, I've experienced worse than oh, that. Oh, yeah, no. Like, that horrible joke is nothing. <laughs> Uh, but my other dreams truly were like me running, like running away from something that I couldn't like, it would be either be like a physician or like the things I didn't understand, you know, like this dude in our church who didn't really know him from Adam, but he would just show up in my dream and I would be running away from him and didn't have any, no basis for it. And yet to this day, I'm, I just still feel this instinct of like, there was something in me that knew, don't go near that person, you know? Yeah. Like I just lean into my instincts when I do hear them. <laughs> the cult definitely tried to smack them out of me and turn off all instinct because they want you to be empty and pliable and compliant and obedient and ask no questions. And so there have been many times in my life where I haven't had the instinct, the gut instinct and those feelings, or I have them and I completely ignore them because of the control that was put on me. But yeah, so very interesting. So something that you just mentioned and something that's in the documentary that's mentioned quite a bit is the spanking and the blanket training and just really this abuse, this okay, big air quotes here, okay abuse. Right. 
It's acceptable. Because it's for discipline and it's for training a child. And, you know, children are meant to be seen and not heard. So this tracks a lot. I think this is another one of the places that I have weird connections to, which you and I kind of <laughs> kind of got to the bottom of a bit ago. Maybe I'll share it later. Yeah. But yeah, let's talk about your childhood and let's talk about the spankings, whatever you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it started around six to eight years old and it didn't stop until about 15, 16 years old. Wow. So it was a really long time and it was very hypocritical. A lot of the time it was so aggressive. It was unnecessary. And at every turn, I felt that. Like, I knew I wasn't a perfect angelic child. Who is? Like, kids are not meant to be perfect. That Like, childhood is meant to be the sloppiest time in your life. You're supposed to learn and make mistakes and infuriate your parents and confuse and confound them at every point in time. But send them to school so they're not your problem for at least six hours of the day. You know, don't homeschool them where they annoy you every moment of your day. But, yeah, it was, you know... I don't have all of the answers to some of the questions that I'm sure would be asked of me regarding my parents and why they did this or what brought them to certain points. But I do know for myself that, you know, Bill Gothard absolutely believed in spanking your children. He was also adjacent with James Dobson, whose books he promoted, as well as The Pearls. He promoted The Pearls book to train up a child. And both of those individuals believe in child abuse and they liken their training to animal training. And children, last time I checked, are not animals. They are children. And they are not meant to be trained. They are meant to be raised and loved and supported and guided and directed, not hit. I realize that there is a generation before us. That's how their parents did it. And it was, I'm sure, insanely abusive. And so they learned from their parents. And then maybe they, maybe because they were abused, I want to give space sometimes for this in all of the hope of myself, but maybe when they first had kids, they were like, I don't know that I really want to do this because I know how it felt. But then they don't have any tools or resources in how to actually go alongside their children. And so now they're in their booster pack Christian faith conference. And here they're saying, yeah, absolutely. Wail away on your kid. As you see in the documentary, I had never seen the clip with the little boy in the yellow shirt where they actually displayed, demonstrated how to discipline a child. That is a newer video past my time with IBLP and ATI. And the fact, first of all, the fact that it even happened, the fact that they pulled a stranger's boy, not that father's son, which I don't, there's no situation where it would have been okay. But the fact that it was a random kid that they pull out of the audience to a strange man and then they put him through that ritual of fake spanking and then gaslight and say, you didn't hug me enough to restore the relationship, bend over again. And the crowd laughs. The crowd laughing is probably equally what broke my heart. These people are so brainwashed to believe that hitting children is the only way to manage a child. It's disgusting. And it's child abuse, flat out child abuse. Yeah, it was interesting because... You mentioned James Dobson, and we had a conversation before we hit record, and my listeners know because when I have these conversations, especially with evangelicals and ex-evangelicals, I'm always like, I don't know why I'm connecting to this. It's so, so strange. Yeah. But growing up, my mom always used to make this joke about how when I was born, because I am so, so much, <laughs> when I was born, the doctor took one look at me and told my mom, you need to get the book, The Strong-Willed Child, because 
this one is really, really going to give you some time. And I mean, the doctor wasn't right. I am very strong willed. I'm very independent and strong willed. And I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah. And so she got this book and ha, huh, whatever. And it was always a joke. This like source, like the strong willed child, like they looked at her at birth, whatever. When my mom moved and sort of decluttered, I saw the book. This was years ago. And I said, can I have that? Because it's the source of this joke, right? I'd like to read this one day. And it's been on my bookshelf forever. And the other day I glanced over and I was like, oh yeah, the strong willed child. And I look and it says, by Dr. James Dobson. And I went, Mm -hmm. there it fucking is right there. And we were going through a couple pages and I found a chart and it literally is called like my attitude chart. And it's like, is it excellent to terrible? And you rate my attitude towards my mother, terrible, five points. My attitude towards my father, terrible, five points. And every day you count up all the points and then it gives you a list of consequences. If you only have like six points because there's six, then you get to do something fun with your family. But if you had like in the maximums, it was like, go to your room for an hour. I was always sent to my room for an hour. <laughs> like So even reading that, I was like, oh, go to your room for an hour. I'm setting the timer. And then there's the one SWAT one. And then there's the two Ugh. SWAT. And I'm telling you, my no. parents also used to call them SWATs. And I don't know if I really remember being spanked, but maybe when I read this book, maybe I'll remember more things. It might bring back some... Have your therapist on speed dial, Roberta. Right. I'm like, hi, I found this book. (laughs) (laughs) And now I'm rocking in the corner. Help. (laughs) It's time to unpack this book. So it's very interesting and wouldn't have been anything that I ever brought up. I've even talked about it jokingly in other podcast episodes, like on other people's shows about being a strong-willed child. I had no idea there was a connection. And then like watching the doc, talking to you, hearing the name James Dobson, and then seeing it on the book, and then knowing your story a bit about the the spankings and the punishments and being like, oh, I know the first person that I need. To- you were literally the first person. I was like, look at oh. what I found. <laughs> you look the beautiful mind. It all just connected. Help. <laughs> right? I was like, I we love a full circle moment. It's, you know, Dr. James Dobson, author of Dare to Discipline. I'm like, it's so, it's all right here. It's insidious. I might have to go through that at another time, but it's all there. And It's horrific that there were books written about the most best way to abuse your child without it being like as bad as we were abused. Oh, yeah. Like the boomer generation is like, we were beat within an inch of our life. So we're not going to beat our kids that much. Here's a book on how to beat them just a little bit. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular, personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. 
I got my report and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet. And they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. We're going to calculatingly hit them. Calcul- yes. We will hit them with calculation. We will hit them where it, the SWATs can't be seen. Right. That was another way that we were disciplined. It's where it wouldn't be seen. Keep your arms away. You can't block a hit because if you do, I mean, every now and then I would have a bruise on my forearm and it, you know, <laughs> it looks like a stick or a switch or a dowel rod or yardstick or whatever the device was. Usually wooden spoons, dowel rods and yardsticks were the things that were used. Wooden spoons and belts. Yeah. Oh, not a belt. Oof. Thankfully, I was never hit with a belt, but there was always the threat. I do remember the sting of the wooden spoon. Oh, yeah. Like that. I do remember that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus will never. That will never be forgotten. No, never, ever. <laughs> and yeah. I remember the threat of the belt, but I do mm. not remember the belt. I remember the cracking of the belt and like the Oof. threat of the belt. Yeah. And my parents were not bad people. They just were parents that didn't they got a bad book from a bad doctor they're believing him because he is a psychologist and they believe it and he's religious so he wouldn't propagate harm right why would he do that like he's not going to support us hurting our children he's giving us the best way to get their attention and train them he's not gonna like he wouldn't endorse abuse yeah sorry guys it's abuse james dobson abuse yeah (laughs) that's all he is he's an abuser you read the back of this book and it talks about all of his accomplishments he's an associate clinical professor of pediatrics at the university of southern california school of medicine i mean that's not a easy position to get right like right i mean there are attending staff of children's hospital of los angeles in the division of medical genetics it talks about how he's on barbara walters and the dinah short show and all of these things because this is from 1978 but like it talks about all of his accomplishments. So anybody, if your doctor goes, oh, you should check out this book and you're a new mom of a baby who's you've been told is going to be horrible and you should probably start training her now. And you go and you get this book and you go, I don't know about this. And you read the back and you go, oh, this guy, he's got a book called What Wives Wish Their Husbands Knew About Women. You know, like, oh, can't wait to read that nugget filled book. <laughs> What an accomplished author. I'll pick it up. Can't wait to see what a man thinks a woman wants a man to know. <laughs> I can't, I'm sure it's going to be so insightful and pretty accurate. Oh, man. <sighs> you know what I mean? Like, so you look at the back of this and you're like. It's like Bill Gothard talking about marriages and children raising and he has no marriage or a child to speak of. <laughs> it's wild. And there's like all these family photos in the middle of the book about how wonderful and great it's all their personal family photos about what a great family and husband and father he is yeah they were conditioned that's why 
conditioned. Absolutely. I could totally understand in 1981 picking up this book and being like, I don't know what's going on. Help me. And feeling comfort and feeling like, oh, fine. Okay. Yes, this will help. And also allowing, it allows you as a parent, it gives you validation and permission. It's giving you permission to hit your children. Because this guy, who I have no reason to not believe, is telling me it's okay. And you know that when a parent gets to a point of wanting to hit somebody, they've already gone too far. They need to be taken from the room. I don't care if your child is thrashing around in the living room because they can't have a certain toy. Put yourself in timeout before you decide that you're going to go in and hurt a child. Like, how dare anybody do that? These are their developmental years, and you are actually harming not just their body, but their development. Absolutely. Yeah. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And I mean, I'm just so happy that people like you are speaking out about this stuff. So you said the abuse went until like your mid-teens, 16 years old? Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely it did. And it was... You know, the goalpost moved always, you know, it wasn't always a clear reason or look, I too was willful. I wasn't dubbed a strong willed child, but I was a willful child. You know, I had an independent spirit. That was the zinger for ATI kids, you know, an independent spirit because you are not dependent upon God. You are dependent upon yourself and therefore you are prideful because you think you know more than God. So I need to be humbled. Therefore, let us spank you so that you will know your place and shame and guilt and blah, blah, blah. Unfortunately, I didn't believe in God. So was it going to work for me? (laughs) Again, I played cute and cuddly and I've towed the line that I was supposed to on the outside, but on the inside, what is it they say where you're like, you're sitting down on the outside, but you're standing up on the inside. That's the full on like kind of Christian equivalent of like willfulness It's like I complied on the outside as best I could, but I am a powerful being. And I know that to be inherently true now. Then it was like, why can't I control myself? Why can I not just bite my lip? Why do I have to put in the little, you know, I know my dad wants to hear yes, sir, no, sir, at all times. But sometimes I'm like, okay, with that little, yeah, but I can't help it. I'm like, you are pushing me to my breaking point. So why do you get to always be the assertive abuser here when I want to assert? And I like, I should have some semblance of say here. But as and especially as I was starting to get older and growing up into womanhood, this was becoming in my mind now looking back, it was becoming even more than just me being a little independent spirit. It was wrong and it was happening. And so I would just like, I don't know, like steal myself up for what would come. Like I would know that if I behaved a certain way, I would know what would happen. And I just didn't give a fuck. Like, fine, do what you have to do because I'm just, you know, and yet oddly, I would like walk back into the bedroom and get ready to be disciplined, you know, instead of saying, no, you don't get to do this anymore. I'm the same height as you back off. I was still ruled by the fear. I feared him far more than I ever could fear hell or Satan. Like Satan sounds like a party to me compared to my upbringing. And so that independence that I had inside of myself, you know, when Bill Gothard finally comes along at at 18 years old and is like, hey, do you want to go to headquarters? Do you think I'm going to be like, oh, no, please send me back into my abusively strange, mucked up home? Like, yes, I will go. You're weird, but I will go. (laughs) 
<laughs> because you're not going to probably do that to me. Even though it had been a couple years, you know, since the spankings, I still I had zero trust whatsoever or respect for these individuals at home. Yeah. Like at all. So let's talk about that. You say at 18, Bill Gothard comes to you and says, I'm interested in having you come to headquarters. Yeah. Sees me across the breakfast room at a hotel. How romantic. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> wow. Flutter, flutter. That's so gross. <laughs> in a room full of other ATI kids. You know, I was not the only one in there, but he just, he locked eyes on me and he very awkwardly wasn't looking around the room. And I noticed that right away and I felt really uncomfortable and heart palpitations. And I was like, that was probably one of the first times I was like, wait does he actually see God in me? You know, where it's like people are constantly judging you and you have to try to be perfect. And it's like, he's not flinching. He's not looking away. He's not, I don't see judgment in his eyes. Is he like, because he's our prophet and he's, you know, this ministry leader, does he see how hard I've been trying to try to be a good person to like, have I finally, I think a part of me too is like, have I finally faked it hard enough that it looks like I really am like God fearing? And maybe in pretending to be God-fearing, I actually am. Like, I was, like, having a mind meltdown as he's just, like, watching me from across the room. And then he finally gets up and comes over and asks me to, like, meet with him later in his office later that night or whatever. But it was a whole week of dealing with him at that seminar. So for those who are unfamiliar, what is headquarters? Headquarters is in Oak Brook, Illinois. It's basically where Bill Gothard has this, it's the center heartbeat of his ministry. He's had that property for eons, like just decades and decades, but it's his, I think it's honestly the heart of the ministry and it's where his offices are. It's where the main operation offices are. So they have like a staff center area where his office is. And then there's a really big production center, which is actually where I ended up working, but it's just the, the day-to-day operations. You know, they had a print press there. So they were like printing their materials there. All of the products and materials were shipped out from Oak Brook, Illinois across the globe. So yeah, the main corporate headquarters. What was your job at headquarters? Did you guys get paid or was this all volunteer? So it depends. It depends on how you get there. And it depends on if you're a Gothard girl. (laughs) I say that with a lot of sarcasm because I hate the term, but it is a descriptive at this point. But you could volunteer to come to work at any of his ministry locations, whether it was the training centers or at headquarters. Headquarters was a lot harder to get to because there was more barrier to entry and they didn't want just anybody at headquarters. Obviously, it's their corporate headquarters. So things need to function at a high level. (laughs) And and we can't have like weird young homeschool kids that don't know how to do anything. But I'm like, but that's mainly most homeschool kids. (laughs) that we're in ATI. We're like, we don't really know how to do much, but at least we're energetic and we're always willing to learn. And you're moldable. Exactly. And we're conditioned. Yeah. We're primed. You know what we know. You know how we've been educated and you know how we are supposed to act. And you know that we know how we're supposed to act because at this point you self-govern. You know, you know how to be in the lane you're supposed to be in. So some people don't get paid if they volunteer, if they're sent there for just a few months because they want to work on the grounds crew or they want to like work in the kitchen for God. Like it's very weird. But then there's people like myself where you do actually get on staff and you are given a paycheck. So I can't fully speculate, but my guess would be that it was probably at least 70% of the people there were on payroll. Again, it's the corporate headquarters, so we're all functioning in a corporate business space. And were you being paid a livable wage? (laughs) 
No. <laughs> I mean, I think it was like five bucks an hour, but this was back in like 96, but I was getting paid five bucks an hour. I think it ended up going up to 550 in the three years I was there. <laughs> but so I was a part of the ATI division. So I was in the homeschooling department. We called it the information center. <laughs> but anyway, I was in the ATI department in the information center, and I worked a lot of different jobs in there. So I just circulated around. I got to where I could probably do every one of the jobs, or at least most of them, because I had spent time in each desk. <laughs> so like the finances for enrollment, when people would send in their checks every year for their, you know, to get their renewals and get all their products and stuff. And then like enrollment systems where you're like doing all the data entry. I was also at one point I was giving advice and counseling to mothers who were struggling with the ATI program and keeping up with their reporting, what to do with strong-willed children, et cetera, et cetera. And my advice was never to spank them. <laughs> my advice was, you know, maybe you should spend time one-on-one -on -one with them and talk to them. And, you know, I, of course I had Bible verses that I would try to pull up and be like, you know, because, you know, a loving tone, turn away wrath or whatever it might be, just trying to like, maybe get to know your kids instead of trying to hurt them all the time to do what you want them to do. But again, I didn't have therapeutic words. It was just, I just had a heart to please don't spank them. But then also encouraging them like, I know it's so hard, mother and me 18 and you of, I don't know what, probably 22 <laughs> with four kids. But I'm just like, I, you can do this. And you know, it's, it's just break it down into smaller pieces. I have no children. I'm not married. What the hell do I know? And here I am from like 18 to 21, giving advice to mothers who think I am a godsend. Because anyone at headquarters, if you've gotten to the point where you're at headquarters, you've reached the top. Like you are the full trustworthy package. They do not ask questions about like, well, how old are you? You sound really young with that like infantile voice syndrome that everybody seems to have. Oh, don't mind me, ma'am. I'm just 18, but I love the Lord. You know what I mean? Like it's, they just trust you. Just blind trust. Just full security clearance. Yeah, exactly. And we also, in the information center, we had all of the family's information in just physical files. Yeah, we weren't, I mean, this was the 90s. There, we Nothing was like fully data entered into the computer yet. While I was there, we were starting to switch over to that. So we were going through all the files and doing data entry and scanning stuff in. But in the beginning, it was like just a room full of filing cabinets. And I could literally go over and pull out a file and read it if I wanted to. <laughs> you know, people that had like troubled kids or, you know, divorcees, like just all of the things. Like if <laughs> there were some files I remember I would pull out, I'd be like, whoa, this is a meaty file. Because <laughs> like, like if a mom called and she didn't know what was going, you know, what to do or whatever, I would run and grab her file first to just see like, well, is this a pattern of behavior with her? Is this is a, like, is there something going on? Oh, they have an adopted child. Well, yeah, this is probably going to be troublesome or, you know, just the things that you're pre-programmed already from the way I was raised and indoctrinated in the wisdom booklets and Bill Gothard's training. I would then judge based on how other people had already judged and then whether or not this person was changing based on scripture. It was, it, I'm telling you, I apologize to the masses for not even realizing what my part of like thinking I was helping, but then also really not. And just trying to navigate something that I had no business being in, in the first place. I should have never been in that situation ever. Thanks, Bill Gothard. That was, I was there for almost three years. I was the assistant to our department head at the time. I kind of worked my way up. 
you know, I like to work my way up in things. <laughs> <laughs> well, aside from being a very well-oiled cog in this Bill Gothard machine, like what was it like being at headquarters? Do you guys live at headquarters? Like what were the yes. situation? Like what was that like? Yeah. So headquarters is different from the training centers. The training centers are uh, hotels. And so everybody stays on compound or on the property in the hotel itself. So it feels like a, probably like you're going on a really horrible nightmare cruise that you can never get out of. Like you don't get to go out much. Do you know what I mean? But at headquarters, it was very different headquarters. They actually owned a ton of property there. And so they owned a bunch of houses. So we would all live in houses. I was in a home that was, you know, just a stone's throw away from the production center, the building that I worked in. And I think we had at any given time, four to five people, four to five girls in the house. So it was obviously because of purity culture, a girl's homes, boy's homes, and the two shall never meet. And I think I was in that house maybe six to seven months and I became house mom. It, to me, that's just like validation of status. Not that I'm looking for the status, but okay, you're validating me that I'm strong, that I can be a leader, that I can handle these situations. It wasn't what I was being given at home. So I would take it. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm nervous inside because I know people are going to judge me because now I'm at a different level and people get jealous and get bitter. And I already had the big bullseye on my back because I was a Gothard girl. And that means that I came to headquarters not through the normal routes. I came in a fast track because Bill liked me at a seminar. And everybody at headquarters was very aware of what that looked like. I was warned before I even got to headquarters. Bill warned me to be careful of the girls because a lot of them get jealous because he spends time with everybody, but he does sometimes spend time with more people that need more attention and more time with the Lord. And so, you know, just be aware that people can be jealous. And I'm like, but that goes so against your teaching, like headquarters. Again, I looked at it as this like, you know, shiny castle on a hill. So I'm like, why would you have people there that are jealous? Like this, I don't understand. And when I got there, I was like, Oh, no, you know, he, he was not wrong. <laughs> he was definitely not wrong. So instead of the girls going, girl, be careful. He's not safe. It was, oh, you're one of Gothard's pets. And I'm just like, really? Really? That's where we're at here? Which kind of disgusted me. And I alienated myself from a lot of the girls. Because I'm just, I'm not about this. Like, sorry, I came here this way. It's not my fault that this happened. I said, yes, my parents approved. What can I do? I mean, a part of me is just a, I'm just a pawn here in this whole scenario. I, I mean, who does Bill Gothard think he is, though? Like selecting <laughs> ladies from the audience, like he's in some sort of 80s hair band. Like, <laughs> I'll see you backstage. Like, it's so creepy. It's so it's creepy. creepy when musicians do it. And it's <laughs> super duper extra creepy when your pastor does it or whoever. You know what I mean? Like, right. And then to have the moniker of Gothard's girls, which essentially means, oh, uh -huh. those are his little pets that he hand picks from the audience. Like, it's just so gross. Yeah. You're slightly immune too. Like I didn't realize that at first, but I started realizing about it uh, maybe six months to a year in, I was kind of immune to certain things. 
I wasn't sent home for small infractions or if someone was getting upset because my skirt came unbuttoned on the bottom button at my ankle, you know, and they would go and tattle to somebody, it would be like, I would just get admonished like, hey, Lindsay, you know, just make sure you're putting a safety pin so that the, you know, the skirt doesn't come open and everyone gets hard ons from seeing your ankles because I guess they're so mad gorgeous. Totes. (laughs) I tease. I don't get it. They're just ankles, y'all. <laughs> but it was stuff like that. I'm just like, wow, some people would get two or three infractions like that. And then they would just not be tolerated and be sent home. Bill wanted everybody to be a certain way, especially the girls he chose. He had high expectations for the girls that he picked to be around him. I mean, aside from this being culty, this is very MLM-y as well. Like it's the mega huns at yeah. the top of the pyramid that can be racist, that can cuss people out on lives that can just do horrific things and because they make the company so much money and they're handpicked basically that they can get away with anything it's the same yeah construct like it's the same it's copy paste yeah absolutely it is gothard girls are the hun bots or the mega huns of <laughs> ati and iblp that's what it is only in the <laughs> fact that we just don't get admonished as quickly. Yeah, you're untouchable. Yeah, but we're also still trying to be completely perfect all at the same time. You know, like we're not really acting out because we're like, it just even seems more volatile if we did, you know? Well, I feel like you probably have a much bigger target and a magnifying glass on you as well because if you're supposed to <laughs> yeah. be these perfect Gothard girls that were handpicked, like your skirt shouldn't unbutton at the bottom, Lindsay. Like you should know better. Exactly, yeah. So I even feel like when a gothard girl messes up it's like oh, run to reddit <laughs> yeah <laughs> thank god we didn't have reddit back then oh my god i'm so glad i did not live in the day of cell phones because i can't even imagine trying to live in that culture with that i mean the level of gross shaming at what point did you decide I'm, I want to be out of IBLP. You leave headquarters. You were only there for three years. Yep. I was sent away from headquarters because I had sent finally away. crossed the line. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. How many buttons were unbuttoned this time, Lindsay? <laughs> oh, there were no buttons. It was just I kissed a boy. <laughs> <gasps> yeah. Honestly, I was starting to get really frustrated just with the hypocrisy of everything. And I don't know that I really understood it for myself at the time, but I just felt my life just wasn't going anywhere. And though I had a lot of status at headquarters and I could get away with a lot, I just was like, what is my future? Like, I, if I went home, I knew it would be work in the home. Like, my dad was not going to let me get a job outside of it. So I guess I'll just, I don't know, be a housemaid until some guy happens to find me. I don't know how he's going to find me because I'm going to be in my house. And so I thought, well, I'll just keep on being at headquarters. But, you know, sometimes there's cute guys at headquarters. <laughs> So did the guy that you kissed, he also worked at headquarters? Yes, he did. Was he also sent home after the kiss? He was sent home first. He was sent home within like a day. I lasted another three months. And then it was brought to my attention by Bill. He sat me down after a morning meeting. He was like, oh, Lindsay, come over here. So we sit down and he's like, so I just want to let you know that uh, I can't hold the board back any longer. And I had no idea the board was being held back. The board? Yeah. Yeah. He had a whole board, like a board. And so he was just like, I can't hold them back any longer. They're insisting that you leave. And I'm just like, I already knew that at some point this could happen. Although three months later, I was like, oh, 
okay, I dodged that bullet. I'm never going to kiss anyone again. (laughs) I'm just going to behave, keep my buttons buttoned, and we're just going to do the thing. But he was like, so what we're going to do is we're going to send you to Oklahoma City Training Center. And I was like, well, I think I should probably go home. Like, there's some tumultuousness in my family. My parents had separated. Some of my brothers were still at home. And I was just like, I just, as the oldest sister, I feel like I need to go home. And he's like, oh, no, I've already talked to your parents and they've approved. Oh. I'm 21 at this point. Within a week, I'm stuck in a 15-passenger van and I go straight down to Oklahoma City and I'm there for five months. Against my will, basically. The fact that for three months, a board of, I'm assuming, white men. Directors, white men, yep. (laughs) Discussed you and someone else having a kiss. For three months, a whole group of men had multiple conversations about a kiss. For three (laughs) months, you lived rent-free in in all those dudes' heads. (laughs) To the point where they were like, we just can't have any more meetings about this. It is taking up too much of our time, too much of our energy. Get her out of here. Lindsay's kiss is an energy vampire. You just need to send her back to where she, you know what? Send her to Oklahoma. (laughs) Give her the worst of it. (laughs) Get her an attitude adjustment. I mean, when you think about it like that, like you don't have anything better to do. Than to have these meetings and call up Jesus and confer and be like, should we or shouldn't we for three months? <laughs> and I'm sure they're all on salary, right? So they're all getting paid. Of course. To confer yeah. <laughs> on this very pressing issue. Can you imagine the emails? <laughs> I can't even imagine. <laughs> I mean, I can't actually, which is what's so terrifying. This is what I feared in my life is this, you know, like the public shame of going to headquarters, surviving there for three years, having a lot of status, and then all of a sudden, whoop, nope, now you get to literally go to Hellscape in Oklahoma, which honestly, it was probably one of the better training centers I could have gone to. I'm glad he wasn't sent to Indianapolis because I would have run away from the training center. But Oklahoma City, it was still hell. I hated it. I was treated very poorly because, of course, the, the woman that was in charge of the females was like, she really had it out for me and treated me so disrespectfully. I ended up getting like having my first IBS attack when I was there. I was having so many stomach bowel problems. And I learned later I'm allergic to wheat. Like I have a well, not yeah, I have like a gluten intolerance. And Bill Gothard heavily believes in whole wheat use. And so all of the meals have whole wheat rolls and things like that. And you'll actually get questioned. I can't even tell you how many times I was questioned for like, oh, you didn't have a whole wheat roll? Like somehow I wasn't godly. And so then I would go and suffer through eating just a doorstop um, and feeling shitty. Well, I mean, to be (laughs) fair, out of all the wheats, whole wheat is the most godliest of wheats. It is. It's the most pure of wheats. I hate whole wheat so much. (laughs) It can just go to hell. (laughs) It can go burn there. I hope wheat's afraid of hell because that's where it's going. (laughs) Wheat is totally having spooky hell dreams. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Wheat would give me hell dreams. (laughs) But as my intestines were torn inside out, the fact that I had so much oversight and I would say like, I can't I like, I cannot get out of my bed. Like my stomach is doubled over in pain. Like I feel like I need some help or assistance. And I'd be like, well, you know, the reason this is happening to you is because you have still given ground over to Satan from what happened at headquarters and you <laughs> haven't submitted and humbled yourself enough. Like I haven't somehow rooted out 
what's going on with me? And I'm like, I'm literally in physical torture. And you're like, oh, I'm sorry. You haven't let God do a good work in you yet. I'm like, God's about to do a huge work in here. and It is not going to be pretty. <laughs> Come on, lady. So because like, you kissed a boy, uh... you now have gluten intolerance and IBS. Like that's the problem here. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe that would be their interpretation. I failed morally. Therefore I now have IBS and, you know, gluten intolerance. <laughs> and honestly, I really do believe it's the anxiety. Absolutely. I think that the anxiety and the fear that I lived with from such a small single digit age and then having to be in the pit of hell of headquarters and always knowing that everybody's eyes were watching me far more scrutinized than other people, knowing that Bill was constantly wanting these prayer sessions, which I know you've heard about, but like these prayer sessions with me constantly, it felt handmaidy. Like when I watch Handmaid's Tale, I'm like, oh my God, I know how this feels. I know how it feels to be absolutely scrutinized at every single thing you do. Your eyes where they look. I was told by Bill once that my eyes were too large when I talked to people, that when, especially men, that he noticed when I talked to men, my eyes got bigger. And so when I do that, I am showing them that I'm interested in what they are saying. And when I do that, I am misleading them with promises that I cannot fulfill. And so then for a week, I literally walked around with my eyes like half squinty, where I'm like, intentionally trying to not look like I was really interested in what people were saying. And finally, one of my guy friends was like, what is, do you have something in your eye? Because I wore glasses. He's like, do you need a new prescription or something or something in your eye? And I'm like, oh, no, I just don't want to seem like I'm too eager to talk to people. <laughs> and he was like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, when I open my eyes normal, does it look like I'm just like really interested in what you're doing? And do you think that I want you to date me or something? And I'm so glad that I could be honest with him. And he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, at any time when we've had discussions, because he worked in my department, and I'm like, at any time when we've talked, do you get this feeling that I'm like trying to vie for like marriage or something? And he was like, no, that's just your normal face. okay, I'm not squinting anymore. This is stupid. And it hurts my head. <laughs> I mean, according to Bill Gothard, if you are just an enthusiastic conversationalist, you're now a pick me girl. Yeah. And I think that he wanted me to save that enthusiasm for him, I think. Ugh. And how interesting that he's watching me when I don't know he's watching me. And he just, I think he had some envy. Like, no, the, I want your exci ex excitement and your energy for me. That's how I interpret it. I've noticed lately that when you talk to the young, cute boys, your eyes get a lot bigger than when you talk to me. <laughs> and I want your eyes to be only big for me. So if you could squint... You would look a lot better for me when I watch you from my tower. Right, right. I won't feel so jealous. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so creepy. What a creeper. He's a mess. Yeah. And then his footsieing and crap. You know, he just, it just, yeah, it's just all the things. And, and it's when we come back to like the conversation of cult behavior and stuff, this conditioning is what kept me in these situations because I was never at any point by a parent told that I was allowed to feel safe, that 
people couldn't and shouldn't do these types of things, even though they may seem like small infractions to some people, when it's purity culture and you are never, ever touched and someone decides to hold your hand to pray with you or plays footsie under a table with you and it's the leader of the cult you're in, like this is crazy stuff. And it, I was in fight or flight so many times, not even knowing that's what it was. I would just say to myself, like, I'm in so much conflict. Like, I feel a certain way, but I know a certain way. So how there's no act, like I want to fight it and I want to run, but I know that I should just be here and, and respect him. Yeah. You know, it keeps you stuck. And as I've said before, too, like the door was wide open I could have left at any time with like $500 in my bank account. But even with the door wide open and access in Chicago for me to just leave my house and never come back, just go MIA, it never crossed my mind. Not once did it cross my mind to leave and just go make a life. And that's part of the control and the conditioning at the early age. They instill so much fear that if you are wayward in any way, it is a one-stop ticket to hell. Like the second you're out of our sight, you're the devils. He's you, you belong <laughs> to him now. Like we could, we tried, and so you have this fear of like I can't leave. There's too many things. It's like a sunk cost fallacy, but like for your salvation and your life. Yes, and you're just like I I can't leave. I won't have anything. I won't this. I, I won't have my community. All these things, and so the door could be wide open. You could be actively being abused, and the door's wide open. And you're like, yes, but if they catch me and bring me back, like the consequences of that would be so much worse than just staying. Yeah, and it's just so much easier to just comply because then I don't make myself a target, and someone else will be the target for the abuse, and I can just skate by another day. Yeah, like it. It's really it's there. That's why they indoctrinate you in that way. Oh, yeah. It keeps you compliant. So that when you question, should I leave? You're like, of course I would never leave. These people love me, even though that's not the case. It's more like they love God. They love God. And so I have to trust that they're out for my best interest, even though your gut instinct's like, there's no best interest here at all. I'm miserable. I'm literally just mentally tortured at this point. And physically, my body's falling apart because it can't handle any more of this conflict. So at what age did you break free? My break free was getting married because, again, that's there's no way. I had nothing. I couldn't just go get a job somewhere. At least in my head, I couldn't. I didn't understand resumes or anything. I was just like, I only know how to do like cult corporate stuff. <laughs> I, I mean, maybe I could go work at a church or something. But I'm, I at this point, I didn't want that. Like I really I knew what I didn't want, but I didn't know what I wanted. I just knew what I didn't. And so when the guy that I kissed at headquarters started reaching out to my dad to enter into courtship, which is, again, a part of fundamentalism and some with evangelical too, but fundies take it a few steps further. They're pretty strict about it. So my guy ended up reaching out to my dad and they started communicating back and forth about me. And I was aware because when I got back from Oklahoma City, I started AIM, AOL, AIM. And I started messaging him again. And it was like, we'd never left each other. And I was like, I really thought because like it was five months that we had no communication whatsoever. I was just blip off the map. And I couldn't communicate with him. So I was like, I hope that kiss holds up, you know, <laughs> or I just hope to like, what if that kiss and like what he's had to go through back home, 
what if it just destroys us both, you know, and whatever we thought we might have of like an attraction to each other, like the higher powers snuff it out much to their joy. And then we're still left as miserable people under the control of everybody. I didn't know. I was like, I've known him for over a year, but what do I really know? So I was very surprised to get like that text message. And we, you know, here we are just like, not text, but you know what I mean? AOL. But to be able to message back and forth and just be like, oh my gosh, like it, we were nervous at first and how we were talking to each other. And are you okay? And yeah, I was in Oklahoma. And yeah, I know. And like, how was that? Are you all right? And I'm like, it was horrible. Blah, blah. And then all of a sudden we just kind of fell into this like great rhythm. And I was like, I, at that point was like, I'm never getting married or I'm not getting married until I'm 35. I was only 21 years old. And I was like, I just don't, I don't want marriage. I saw what my parents went through. I don't want to be connected to a control freak. I don't want the patriarchal male, though I didn't have those words. I just did not want to be controlled. I wanted to be Lindsay and have time to figure out who the hell she was without someone telling me I had to wear a skirt and go to church and eat whole wheat bread and be nice. Like in all of my journals, literally in every journal entry, whenever I talk about a potential person for marriage, I always said, I hope he's kind. I just wanted the most basic kindness to be offered to me. And then if I met a boy, I would be like, oh, he had kind eyes or he seemed to speak so kindly to everybody. It wasn't, he's so dreamy. Oh my God. Like I didn't have this like crazy infatuation, which is also what my parents would always try to keep us from is these like romantical infatuations of women's minds and their whatever's, their fantasies. And I'm like, I was pretty damn practical. Like you could kind of look a little not so great. And I would have been like, you're kind, cool by me. Kindness is all I cared about. I did not need a hunk from the magazines. If anything, those scared me more because they just seemed really conceited and arrogant. And I just, I want, because remember, I learned how to judge by looks, but like I wanted to have somebody who just seemed kind. Anyway, so he starts reaching out to my dad. And I'm like, oh my gosh, could this really happen? And I'm like, wait a minute, I don't want to get married right now. How am I going to navigate this? Like, I am not, I, huh. but also I'm home and I can't go back to headquarters because I already asked Bill about that because he had called a few times after I got home and he was like, well, Lindsay, you know, we're so blah, da, 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 da. And he's like trying to get me to like, you know, we could take you to like the Indianapolis Training Center. You could go to Northwoods or Flint or what, all these other programs. And I'm like, if I'm not going back to headquarters, it's just a no. And he's like, yeah, well, unfortunately with the board, we're not gonna be able to bring you back to headquarters. And I'm like, quit falling on the board, bro. God, the board needs to let it go. <laughs> but also maybe we're just glad that the board was like sticks up their butt because I didn't need to go back into that at all. And if I had, I probably wouldn't have married my hubby. <laughs> but he did not give up. My dad said no. It was a mess. But anyway, we do finally start getting the permission to start courting. And about two or three months later, I get engaged. Took me by surprise. I did not see it coming that soon. Anyway, so five months later, I got married. And I remember leading up to it, one very specific memory. I had shorts on. I lived in Florida. I had shorts on and a tank top because at this point, I'm like, zero fucks to give to anybody anymore. I have my man. I'm engaged. I know he doesn't care. And I'm just free the legs, man. Free the legs. So I'm sitting there with like all of this like wedding stuff around me trying to plant. I plant it all on my own. And so I'm like, okay, these are all the things. And my dad walks in the room and he looks down at me like so disapproving as he does. And he was like, do you think your future husband would approve of the outfit you're wearing currently? And I looked down at him. I'm 22 years old, man. I'm like, I'm looking pretty hot. I know it. <laughs> I've seen an Abercrombie and Fitch ad before. <laughs> and I like look down and I look back up at him. I'm like, yeah, I think he would definitely approve of what I'm wearing right now. And I just had a really big smile on my face and I went back to what I was doing because I'm like, strong-willed child, 
one point, you know, Mm -hmm. you actually no longer get to control and dictate what I do. And that burns your biscuits. And I'm okay with that. You know, so that was like my walk to freedom and then getting married. And honestly, like my husband and I just had to figure it out as we went. And deconstruction wasn't the big thing that it is now. So we weren't like, well, what are we deconstructing this week, honey? Let's deconstruct not putting our light under a bushel. Like, or just the weird stuff. Or let's go through the Ten Commandments and the tablets and how that affected us. Like, it was just, I don't want to do this anymore. Like six months into our marriage, I stopped going to church. I was like, you can go if you want to. I don't, I, if you feel like you need it, but I, I can't do it anymore. I would feel so physically ill getting to church in the morning. And then I would like start to hyperventilate a little bit while I would hear the hymns and everything else. And then listening to the pastor, I would just argue with him in my head the whole time. I'm like, you're wrong. You're wrong. But I don't know why. I just, you're wrong. You're wrong. Um, and I was like, what am I doing to myself? Again, the door is wide open. Now I'm going to close it. Like, I'm just going to close the door now. I don't want to go out that way anymore. I'm, I'm going to carve a new path. So for the last like 20 years, that's what I did. I just carved a path and it was the school of the most fucking crazy hard knocks. And I've been used and abused by other human beings in the industry. I work in fashion and beauty and, you know, hair and makeup. And so we know the egos and the control that that lives there. And I'm also at the same time, I'm like, this really sucks that I'm still having to fight all this stuff. But I'm like, but it's also really comfortable because I'm so used to it. Like, I feel like I was just primed to be in this space because I'm like, dude, I see you. You do not scare me. Are you kidding me? And yet I was always still worried about everybody's judgment of me. And so then I'm still living with that fear. And that's actually what I had to deconstruct from the most is the fear and the anxiety. But at every turn, my husband has been kind. He has been lovely. We've been married for 23 years now. Still married. That's amazing. Bill wrote him a letter, by the way, before we got married, basically telling him that we shouldn't get married, that he shouldn't marry me at this time because I was not ready yet, that I still had lessons to learn in my life and my spiritual life, and I was not mature enough. He also said that he had instilled himself as a spiritual father to me, which he had said to me many times. And so that's why he was speaking in this way. He was still controlling me, trying to control my narrative and my future well after I had left headquarters. Wow. He still wanted that control. And that's what wasn't in the documentary. (laughs) Yeah. He still wanted that control. He didn't want to give you up yet. No. He didn't want to give you over to your husband. No. And congratulations. Thank you. I mean, it just worked out great. You were like, I I just know. I know that boy. I'm going to kiss him. I'm going to get in trouble. It's going to be worth it. (laughs) And we're going to show everybody that it was worth it. I didn't know that's how it would turn out, Roberta, but it was my hope at every turn. You know, I just hoped that he wouldn't forget me. And then also that, you know, maybe he would try. But I was very scared of him when he told me he was going to try to talk to my dad. I'm like, good luck, dude. Like, you know, because I had told him so many things about my dad and so many private situations. And I'm like, he is not going to be the easy egg to crack. Like, he will be the hardest thing you ever do in your life. (laughs) Just be ready. He's not easy. Wow. And he did not back down. He did not let it dissuade him for one second. I got a good man. Wow, yeah. I got lucky. So before we finish up with the questions I talk about at the end, I'm curious about Shiny Happy People. How did that come to be for you? For me, it actually came through Chad. He had talked to Olivia and Lauren first. 
we're in, you know, similar, the Facebook groups that are for XATI kids and stuff, which if you guys aren't on that and you are an XATI or IBLP kid, you should totally join. The more the merrier. There's several different groups out there and we just, we love on each other. Some of us bicker and fight still about theology, but (laughs) whatever. It's what you're going to do as a cult kid. But anyway, he actually had talked to them. I had seen the post about like, hey, there's a potential documentary. These women are lovely. If you guys want to talk to them, just passing on the info. And I saw it and I was like, oh, I think I'd been on TikTok maybe four or five months talking about my story. So I was still like finding my own courage and I was incognito. No one knew my real name and just tried to keep it on the DL. It was during COVID as well. So it was like I had all the time in the world to do stuff. But then he had talked to them. He and I were already friends. And he was like, you should really get on this. Like, you should talk to them. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And he's like, Lindsay, seriously. So I reached out to him. I'm like, so here's a cliff notes of my story. And they're like, can we call you this week? We'd really love to talk to you. And it turned into like a three and a half hour conversation. And I just told them like my whole story from A to Z. And they were so precious and so wonderful. And the two, it's very weird when you first tell your trauma story. And people sit there and cry for you. Like, I didn't even know. I couldn't cry. I couldn't feel emotional. And it was so weird how detached I was at the time with my own feelings. It was just, I'm just giving you facts. And then watching how much it hits someone else who, you know, was also raised in high control religion, but then also just like, this is so unfair. Like, getting that empathy and that deeper understanding of validation that, yeah, this was shitty was really one of the first times I'd ever really experienced it. I mean, people on TikTok were commenting, but that's different. You're not getting someone's visual. I'm not getting their physical responses. So seeing that in them, I'm like, stop, don't cry. You don't have to cry. And they're like, this is so horrible. <laughs> this is just like, so really awful. And I'm like, I mean, thank you, you know, but I just want to help because I don't want anyone to go through any more people to be harmed in this. And I want the people that have been harmed to know that there are people out here who, as Tia Levings always like said in the documentary, like the universe will catch you. And I think that we have become a part of that universe to help catch people as they continue to like get out of all of this and untangle it. Like don't fixate so much on like, I must deconstruct. It's like, just get out, just walk away and then let time do its thing. And your instincts will start to come back and lead you to the things you need to start actually like addressing and dealing with in therapy and stuff. But that's how we got involved. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually really good advice for like people who are like, I want to deconstruct, but I don't know how to start. It's like, just get out and just start living an authentic life. And when things come up, address them. Like things are going to come up. Or you could just go to therapy and just dump it all out too. I mean, that's a way to do it as well. Exactly. There's many ways. There's so many ways. And you mentioned Facebook groups. Group therapy is fantastic too. Yeah. Absolutely. Getting that kind of collective sound of like, oh, wait, I'm not alone, you know? And I love watching people ask questions that I think, especially in these groups where I don't know how to put this. I don't want to speak for everybody, but I know that for myself, I felt less than because I was very aware of how much I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know, but I knew there was a lot I didn't know. So then for me to ask questions that feel really stupid or, hey, this happened and I feel so like, does anyone else feel this way or is this literally just a me thing? And to have like 45 people validate you and saying, oh no, literally I'm this way every time my boss does X, Y, Z, or I'm this way every time my kid does this, or yeah, I'm jealous of my child in public school. You know, because they get to go to school and learn every day and I'm jealous right now or whatever it might be. It's so nice to have this like 
community that's like, you know, you're not alone. We get it. The struggle's real. (laughs) Wow. Well, I just, I want to say thank you. Always. Before we get to these questions, where can we find you on social media? You can find me on TikTok and on Instagram at The Cult Chronicles. That's me. And then if you want to look at my hair and makeup stuff because you're curious, you can go to Crazy Pretty on Instagram or crazypretty.com. She's so good, you guys. <laughs> Y'all, thanks. Okay, so at the end, we do questions. They're IBLP-focused for you specifically. Right. I always have to look at them because I always forget what they are. <laughs> <laughs> give me just one word for this one. Just give me one word how you feel about IBLP. Trash. Ooh. Give me a warning to maybe anybody in the evangelical space who is looking into programs similar to IBLP, because I know it's kind of like defunct and everything, but similar programs, getting their kids into a similar thing that happened to you. Give me a warning to those people. Talk to people who have used it, whatever program that may be. Do deeper research than just trusting what you see and don't do it. Just don't. Just go to secular. Don't look to religious materials to educate and influence your children. Wait till they're 21 and let them figure that out on their own and know that you have taught them how to behave as good children in the world and how to be good, kind, wonderful people to humanity. Teach them their empathy. Help them control their emotions and feelings that are too big for their body and help them learn how to regulate. Let them know that they have a safe place to be because if you put your religious beliefs between you and your children, you will lose them. What is your worst memory from IBLP? My worst memory. (sighs) There's too many. (laughs) There really is. My worst memory from IBLP, it would probably be Bill Gothard himself. Yeah, because the man himself is responsible for 90% of the destruction of myself and my inability to have autonomy and grow. And he's responsible for my blocking of my maturity as a child and teen and then into my 20s. So yeah, Bill Gothard, he's my worst memory. What is the hardest lesson that you learned in IBLP? I think the hardest lesson I tried to learn was to become submissive. And then when I got out of everything, the hardest lesson I had to learn was to not be submissive. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's twofold in that, like, I was not submissive on the inside, so I'm trying to force that down. Like, I'm trying to force myself to just be humble, be a quiet, meek, high-voiced, Michelle Duggar voice person, like, just bleh, you know? And, and then when I get out... I can't help but be what I've faked and tried so hard to just be. And so then how do I assert myself? And that's definitely something that I'm still, I would say is probably the hardest lesson is the autonomy of me and being me because they really tried to take it completely away from me. And then we want to finish it on a positive. So what is a positive takeaway from your time in IBLP? My husband. (laughs) That was easy. My husband and that juicy kiss. (laughs) (laughs) That juicy kiss. Won't ever regret it. 
<laughs> Juicy, yummy kiss with those pillow lips. But it really was just, I followed my instinct. And I just, there was something about him that I was like, we connect. And I didn't know if it would be forever, but I was like following my impulse. And that's not something that I was really, I ever allowed myself to do because that's sin. And I was made to pay for it, obviously. And for most people and for myself too, it really did a number on me where I was like, wow, is this actually now God? Is God actually punishing me now physically and now geographically, you know, being sent to this worst place where I can't get out and everybody, all of my authorities who deem me where I go, they say I go. None of them are here to help me or protect me or save me. Like they've said, you must be here and be miserable. It's insane to me that the love we had, though we didn't realize probably the depth of what it was, that we didn't realize just how strong it was, that we could be the kind of like the vessel that each other was able to like carry away and get out of all that nightmare. So, yeah. It's Mr. B. I love that. I love that. (laughs) Mr. Lindsay, as I call him. (laughs) So you can have his anonymity. Yeah. I just, that is such a beautiful story. And like being able to find that silver. I mean, that was the easiest. You're like, oh yeah, my husband, easy. The silver lining (laughs) of like the worst stuff ever. And, like, you guys were each other's getaway car. Absolutely. You were each other's, like, it's me and you. Like, let's get out of here. Yeah, you know? totally. And, like, it just, it's so beautiful. I would say, honestly, too, probably my other silver lining that came many, like, decades later was finding other ex-ATI kids, like Chad and Heather and others that were in the documentary. Like, I get goosebumps when I think about it because they just, having that camaraderie with somebody who we don't have to talk about all the little nuances because we just already know them, you know? And so I, I know that when we're together, the way that we talk must feel and look so strange to everybody else from the outside because we just have so much code, you know, as you know, too, being in MLMs too, I'm sure just the way that things are said, it's just, you just fall into it. So my friends 20 years later <laughs> are also silver lining. <laughs> I love that too. And yeah, absolutely. There's coded language. And it's really interesting because cult coded language is just like different dialects, but it's like the same language across the board, these abuses and the indoctrination and like the gaslighting and the love bombing, it all happens in a very specific way. So being able to talk to somebody who is in a completely different cult and connect with their story in a way where you're like, that's so strange that I connected that way, but that's exactly what happened to me, but in a completely different way, but exactly the same. (laughs) Like, And it's just, I think that's probably one of the coolest things about getting to know other cult survivors, that very interesting coded language that we all have. Yeah. It's a weird comfort. Like, wow, I'm not alone and I don't have to feel weird here. Right. Like I still can feel very weird with other friends, not because they're making me feel weird, but I'm just, again, I'm aware of how much I don't know. I'm aware. I still at 45, I'm like, I cannot info dump enough into my brain. And I'm glad for the industry I'm in because it's forced me to have to really catch up to speed with pop culture and things like that. But still, it's like, there's still so much. And so I'm like, at least with my cult friends, my ex-culties, we're okay that we're weirdos and that when we know what we don't know, and then we also come along with each other and help each other out when we're not sure of something and can lean on each other, which is also a really beautiful thing. So It's like being defrosted and like missing 20 years. You're just like, what did I miss? <laughs> yes. 
I was in my cry. What is it? Cryogenic. Cryogenically frozen. Thing. Yeah. All of this like happened? on solo. Just <laughs> frozen in carbonite. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. There you go. Frozen in carbonite. Yeah. Totally. So funny. Frozen as a Bill Gothardite. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Thank you so much, Lindsay, for coming on and making Thank this you. cold month even extra special. <laughs> I cannot wait for everybody to. Now that we've had this really extensive like evangelical education <laughs> to dive into Scientology and have everybody go, oh, oh my God, it's the same. We're talking about that coded language, you guys. Get ready. <laughs> yeah, it's there too. You'll start to see that trend that happens in high control religious circles. Absolutely. <laughs> Good luck, everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Roberta. You are such a joy. And I want to say to you, actually, I remember watching Lula Rich and I was so fascinated with you. Like, yes, like your See? energy was crazy. And See? I was like, in a good way, <laughs> not just crazy, but I was just like, her energy is a fighter. Like she's a fighter and I feel it burning in her belly. And I was like, oh, I identify. I have goosebumps. I'm like, I identified with that. I saw it in you. And then I remember when I saw you following me, I was like, what? Like her from a documentary I like? What? And then when it started to connect that we were going to get with the same production company that was doing, that did Lula Rich that was going to do shiny, happy people. I'm like, how is this world colliding right now? And then when Corey told me like, Hey, I'm going to put you in touch with Roberta. I'm like, shut up. Like, <laughs> shut up. How is, again, my world was coming together and I'm like, this is so bizarre and so cool. And here we are now yeah. like having this discussion, like we've known each other for decades. It has been a pleasure getting to know you and a pleasure getting to work with you and do all of this stuff. Yeah. And you are just such a joy as well. So the feeling is so mutual. <laughs> Huzzah! Huzzah! <laughs> well, you gave me great advice about my my trepidation because I just didn't know what to expect when the documentary dropped. Like, what happens? Like, I'm living a normal life where no one knows who the hell I am, and all of a sudden, the whole world in over thirty languages is gonna like watch this thing. Like, what happens? I what do I do? Right. <laughs> and I remember you saying you you're just like take everything, say yes to everything, and. I almost quite literally have. I think I've done like almost 30 interviews now. And it has been so amazing and so enriching. I have met so many incredible people. I got to meet one of my other fascinations, Sarah Edmondson <laughs> from Sarah. A Little Bit Culty. Like I just could not even believe that like I cried when they asked me to be a part of that podcast. I could, couldn't even believe it. I was like, I, you are a hero of mine. So that was like pretty amazing. But yeah, so I, I followed your advice, ma'am. <laughs> There you go. I'm glad somebody did. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, it has been so wonderful even to see you. Like I, someone was like, they're Lindsay Williams. And I was like, oh, yeah, I got to talk to her. Like I keep seeing yeah. you everywhere and being like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I did tell her to do them. But <laughs> I literally so. had one comment and so I forget where it was, but one commenter said, hasn't she done enough already? <laughs> no. And I just died laughing. I was like, you can choose not to listen, actually, if you don't want to hear their podcast, man. Like, <laughs> bye. But I'm like, no, it's never enough. If people are still falling for it, then no, we haven't done enough already. Exactly. And it still exists. And so I will not stop until IBLP is completely disbanded. And they're still functioning. So, yeah, but it just cracked me up. I'm like, yeah, get ready. You're going to keep seeing me. I'm not going to shut up. Sorry, buddy. Strong little child. <laughs> That's us. Yep, that is. 
<laughs> oh, thank you again, Roberta. It's always a joy. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast or visit our website at lifeaftermlmpod.com. You can find all of the links to follow in our show notes. Life After MLM is produced by Roberta Blevins. Audio editing is done by the lovely Kayla Craven. Video editing by the indescribable RK Gold. And Michelle Carpenter is our triple emerald princess of robots. If you have a story about a cult, fraud, scam, or MLM and want to be on the show, please hit us up. We would love to help you tell your story and start your healing journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans. Hans.